Well, thank you. It's a great joy to be with you. I appreciate you setting this up and giving me some time with you all. Yes, I had a great experience at the Oregon Convention. You have a terrific group, as you well know. And it was a, a very well-run meeting. We all had a good time. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to address your group. I think uh, your audience is probably uh, well aware that I'm running for the the nomination for president from the Libertarian Party. I'm very excited about the opportunity that we have in 2024. And as I have mentioned to you all in the past, I, I truly believe that it goes beyond just having such an important opportunity. I think it's an obligation for us to get this right. And in that sense, I am working very hard on developing the type of campaign that I think will be a, a winning campaign in the general election, which is to say very much policy forward, very much based on libertarian principles, importantly designed to completely differentiate us from Republicans and differentiate us from Democrats. I think that most Americans want another choice. I think most Americans have a libertarian streak. I think most Americans recognize that our government is going in the wrong direction and that that is in no small part linked to the bad behaviors of the leadership in the Republican and Democratic parties. So I think that we have an opportunity and I think we have a, an obligation to get it right. Fantastic. Um, definitely happy to have you here on the day after July 4th, um, America's birthday, I guess. Lately, I don't feel like we have that much to be happy about when it comes to July 4th, but hoping we can be at least happy about some of the more based aspects of the revolution, like uh, <clears throat> session, like revolution, like uh, fighting for individual rights, uh, watering the tree of liberty. Um, I guess uh, they just permanently banned fireworks in the city that I live in, in Milwaukee, Oregon. Um, so never really was a fireworks person. Next year, probably going to participate just because it's going to be illegal. So I guess we'll, uh, we'll see how it goes. Um, saw your uh, video for July. And good for you for, uh, for doing that. You're right. A lot has gone wrong and you know, arguably some things have gone right in the past couple of hundred years, right? It's not like uh, America as a nation has gotten everything wrong, but certainly as a government, I think that it would be hard to argue that we've gotten a lot correct lately. I think our government has gone off the rails. Sure. Um, Independence Day is uh, my, my favorite holiday, and uh, I, it's also my father's birthday, so maybe it's just commingled with that. Uh, but I, I'm visiting my family in Southern California, and in uh, this working class Mexican uh, neighborhood, uh, on paper, uh, fireworks are illegal, but there was many, many fireworks going off last night, and they're sort of just flaunting uh, the rule of no fireworks. So I, I think it's a, a great libertarian holiday. I think Independence Day is an important one. And uh, if we can encourage uh, sort of <laughs> disobedience at that scale may, in that small way, maybe we should chalk it up as a win. And it's a really great opportunity to see friends and family and sort of reflect. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of political you know unrest, but you know, in our everyday lives, hopefully, it was an opportunity for people to connect with their families. And I, I found Mike, your your message, uh, your caption. I didn't realize it was a video yesterday uh, that, that with you singing the the. The national anthem. I, I just read <laughs> apologies for the lack of uh, skill and talent there, but uh, I hope you'll you'll appreciate the uh, the enthusiasm. I agree with you. July four is a is an important holiday. I I don't think that most Americans and and in fairness, 
it, it probably should not be incumbent upon all Americans to delve into a, a great deal of history on a day-to-day basis, but I, I lay this failure at the at the feet of our primary and secondary public education systems. I don't think most Americans appreciate the the challenges that had to be overcome in the context of the of the revolution, both you know before the actual war, during the war itself, which was of course hellacious, and the aftermath of the war, and trying to figure out first of all whether to put together a nation, how to do so, how the states should work together. As frustrated as as you and I are. And, and we should be, uh, you know, in the grand scheme of things, I suppose we should be lucky that that uh, the founding fathers got so much right, as hard as it is to live up to their ideals. Yeah, I was thinking about that same thing yesterday. And I think the caption that I came up with on one of our memes was, if the founders were alive, like, what would they think of, like, what has happened to this country? Would they, we become everything that they feared that we would? from like letting the banks print their own money to not being a republic to like chasing monsters across the world. Like, do you think maybe they would want to pull the plug at this point and say we should start over? You know, that's a really interesting question. I don't know whether they would say pull the plug at this point only because it is absolutely unclear. And I'm not suggesting that's absolutely necessarily a bad idea, right? It's just as an empirical matter, as as an objective matter, it's hard to know what that looks like, right? It's hard to know, well, first of all, we'd have to define what it is that we mean by pull the plug. Um, I, I do think that in certain aspects, yes, absolutely, we need to pull the plug. For example, I think that we need to pull the plug in terms of our foreign policy being based on military military interventionism. I, I think most Americans at this point would frankly agree. I'm interested in your feedback on this. But I, I believe that most Americans at this point would agree that our interventionist foreign policy has not served our interests well over the past uh, two or even three generations. I think most Americans would agree with that statement that we have not been served well. So certainly in that sense, that aspect of our government, we need to pull the plug on that. We need to bring troops home. We need to end this idea of foreign deployment. We need to get out of agreements like NATO. Um, you know, just objectively speaking, these things have failed us. However, some Americans might agree or disagree with the ethics behind it. You know, I personally don't find our behavior to be ethical or moral in any sense. But just as an empirical matter, I think that most Americans would agree that that is something we need to pull the plug on. Similarly, I think that there are other aspects that we should agree to pull the plug on. For example, I'm, I'm just picking this example out of my ear, right? Uh, the relationship between us and the federal government as citizens having a direct relationship with the federal government and bypassing the states in terms of raising money to the federal government through income taxation on an individual basis or on a corporate basis, I find that not only ethically problematic and and not only a problem from the standpoint of you know, this is sort of an, an an automated railway to the government just continuing to expand, both in size and scope. But I also find it sort of inappropriate. I, I just find, you know, anyone who's been audited, as I have, knows that 
the relationship between the federal government and you as an individual citizen, that is a lopsided battle to the extent to which you ever have an argument with the IRS. It just, you know, we, even if you were to agree or disagree on how much money the federal government should have, I just think the way the government raises it is is inappropriate for a modern democracy. And in that sense, I think that that is an example of something on which we should pull the plug, to use your phrase, which I really like. By the way. Yeah, and maybe we can just agree on pulling the plug just means like we're not interested in like reforming around the edges anymore. We need like a complete like reformation of like what the American government should be, what its role should be in like American society at the very least. I think that's, I think that's well said. Uh, you know, sometimes the way I characterize it is we need a new relationship between us and our government, you know, to a large extent, I mean the federal government, but I also believe that that's true at a local level. I think the relationship that we have with our government in terms of educating our kids is completely upside down. I think it's messed up. The, idea that the local government should raise money and then use it only to fund itself in terms of providing public education, I think is really uh, repugnant and, and, and inappropriate on, on so many levels. So I think that that's, you know, there are plenty of examples there. And I agree with you. Our problems are really at an institutional level. It would be hard to argue. I'm interested in your feedback on this. It would be hard to argue well, it's just a matter of replacing the leadership, right? Um, you know, does anyone actually believe that replacing, for example, Joe Biden and a Democratic administration in the White House with a Republican one is going to lead to greater protection of your individual liberties, greater protection of your right to have a foreign policy that is better aligned with, with your ethics or going to give you, a say, a pro-growth economic policy, pro-trade, pro-free markets, or that's you know, going to get out of uh, the war in Ukraine or in any number of ways. I just don't see it being very easy to argue anymore that you can change leadership now and again and end up in a better place. I think we need institutional level change. You want to take that one, Pablo? Uh, yeah, we'd love to hear it. So uh, we are, uh, I think, skirting around very, very salient uh, libertarian issues uh, to the attempt that to the extent that we want to reset something, I think the Libertarian Party is the only party, especially under the messaging of the new leadership, this this new LNC that and we, we've been talking basically about messaging this entire time. So I think we're ready to head into this. Uh, we're talking about messaging here and we want to know, uh, should you become the uh, the nominee for for the for the LP? Uh, what is your understanding of the Libertarian Party's role in the presidential campaign of 2024? I think uh, our role is going to be important and very different than it has been in the past. So, you know, I noticed you asked your question in, in present tense, but I would say that in the past, we haven't played much of a role at all. And in the future, we're going to play an enormous role. I think that both in terms of what it takes to spread awareness of our principles, as well as what it takes to gain traction in an electoral sense, you know, doing well in polls, uh, doing well in terms of getting some votes, doing well in terms of raising money, getting uh, a higher profile with the media. All of that is 
is the same, in my view, is driven by, uh, driven to the extent to which we can be successful, will be driven by the same strategy. We need to completely differentiate ourselves from the other parties. We need to lead with a very policy forward campaign. That campaign and those policies need to cleave hard edges against the Republicans and against the Democrats. They need to be based on our most unapologetic principles. We need to be the party that's out there not saying something like uh, we're, you know, fiscally conservative like Republicans, which, of course, is not true. Uh, we're socially liberal like Democrats, which, of course, is not true because those parties have left behind those ideals a generation ago. Instead of saying silly things like that that are just completely benign and pander to people and don't really get the kind of engagement we're looking for, we need to be the party that delivers a real hard-edged anti-war message. We need to be the party that says monetary policy is the reason that we have so much inflation. We need to change the way we conduct business in this country. We need to get rid of the Federal Reserve System, replace it with a rules-based system, harden our currency, and prepare ourselves for the future. We need to be the party that says... We are on a railway to fiscal catastrophe that, that there is no way, given the way the federal government raises money and spends money, that it should expect to be, to be solvent anywhere near the end of this century. We need to be the ones out there saying it. We need to be the ones out there saying that, for example, Social Security is an evil plan railroading youngsters into a program that virtually guarantees them, at best, a crappy rate of return. And as an empirical matter, it's a bad deal. And as an ethical matter, it's not something that we should be foisting upon youngsters. This idea of, well, we need more youngsters to participate in this to take care of the previous generation is just a matter of us having set up the system wrong. And propagating it, I think, is a, a really unethical proposition. We need to be the ones that say, to your point about the, the Libertarian Party being the only one that, that can speak to these issues, I agree with that wholeheartedly, which is why I think that we have an obligation to tell the truth. That includes telling the truth about entitlement programs and the need for reform, the need to reform both our foreign policy as well as our domestic issues like healthcare and education. And, you know, uh, this all has to be viewed in the context of we will have crises in the future, right? Uh, a couple of years ago was not the last time we're ever going to have, you know, some virus that people around the world are afraid of. We have to be better prepared in, in, in a libertarian sense than the next time something goes wrong that the population is all of a sudden afraid of, just to cede all authority over to the government and say, you know, we blindly trust you. You give us whatever information you think is right. You can withhold whatever information you want to to get us to do what it is that you want us to do. That we're okay with you threatening us you know, with our jobs to take a, a vaccine or it's okay to shut down our businesses. 
there will be future crises and we need to be better politically prepared to handle those than we obviously were a couple of years ago. That's a very succinct and great crisp sort of overview of uh, what a termat uh, campaign I think would be like and what that would mean for the Libertarian Party. Um, Want to highlight because we're talking about policy uh, so so deeply here. Uh, in the last fifty years, maybe the the two policies that have been the most uh, broad successes that li libertarian ideas could claim in some way or some aspect as being behind the first is uh, gay marriage, which, you know, as a individual ma of a matter of individual rights and free association, the Libertarian Party was on the correct side early in the 1970s, uh, a full year before uh, medical authorities declared that uh, homosexuality was not a mental illness. So that was brave and bold of our Libertarian Party forefathers. Really grateful for that. And the second is um, marijuana legalization and more broadly, drug decriminalization. We are seeing uh, successes there at the policy level. However, in Oregon, uh, people are souring on decrim uh, because how poorly it's been implemented. A recent survey shows that uh, even though Measure 110, which decriminalized drug use, passed with 58% of the vote, support has been eroding since then. So this was passed in 2020. And as of today, 63% of Oregonians support bringing back criminal pen penalties. And it is over 50% in every demographic and in every partisan uh, bucket. We don't see explicitly Libertarian Party uh, fill, uh, like support on Measure 110 being repealed here, but in conversation, our anecdata with members of the Multnomah Libertarians and with members of our Oregon Libertarians across all of our media channels, we, we're hearing people uh, are now soured on decrim. And uh, it, it, it is making it difficult to defend that position in Oregon as a winner. Uh, do you have any insights or thoughts on how we might push back on uh, anti-decrim sentiment among people who are living with decrim? Well, first of all, you have to, this is an extremely important issue. Uh, decrim, as, as you put it, I, I love that uh, abbreviation. Decriminalization in Oregon has not gone well because it has not been handled in libertarian fashion. The whole licensure has been an absolute disaster. You need no lecture from me on this. But I do believe that we need to make that point that, in effect, decriminalization has not been completed. To say that decriminalization has not gone well is to say that the government continues to screw things up. It is not the, the fault of the product. It is not the fault of liberty. It is not the fault of freedom. It is not the fault of the decriminalization program. It is the fault of people who just can't let go, who just can't fall in line with the spirit of what it is that people are trying to accomplish in Oregon. By the way, uh, we're going to have the same problem in, in several other states uh, around the United States, which is one of the reasons why your fight in Oregon is so damned important. And I believe that we need to really rally the troops. Um, I have only heard anecdotally once up until now that there was certain, you know, a certain posture uh, crumbling in terms of support to continue to fight for decriminalization. So I'm really disheartened to hear that the, the lack of support or the 
the waning of support uh, is maybe stronger than I had appreciated. I think that that's extremely dangerous. By the way, to your point, it is very difficult to point to great examples of libertarian uh, victory. We need to point out, however, that the reason standards of living have increased so dramatically in the United States, not only over the past 20 years, but over the past 200 years, both in ter- uh, both relative to the way things used to be, as well as relative to places outside the United States, is because markets work so well. When you allow people to make decisions about how to allocate resources, about how to pursue their education, how to pursue their investment, this is what drives economic growth and it's what raises the standards of of, of living, both in the United States and abroad. And, and so we need to be able to make that case. Look, the reason your families are doing as well as they are is because of libertarian principles not having been completely run over and plowed under uh, by your government. The reason we have so much, on the other hand, persistent intergenerational poverty at the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum is because we have so much bad public policy undermining the development of both culture and economics at the lower end of the scale. And and for these reasons, we need to be able to point out the difference between where markets work well and where they don't, because you're right. There, there is not a large number of clear-cut political victories on the libertarian side of the ledger. Yeah, sure. Well, and thank you for I, that. And, and great, great to point out to our audience here, Mike is an Austrian economics who's uh, traveled and taught at, uh, in 35 countries and, and three universities. So uh, thank you for the lesson there, sir. Appreciate that. Um, could I just take a back to the decrim stuff for a second before we move on to those other topics? I just wanted to ask you uh, – we're going to be writing our own resolution for the public policy board about how decriminalization can be fixed and like what's actually wrong with it and how we should counter some of the issues with it. I'm just curious, like hypothetically, if they were going to legalize drugs in Florida like next year and they just decided that and they're like, oh, let's call in this guy, Mark, Mike Termott. He knows a lot about this uh, former law enforcement officer. Uh, what idea? Uh, well, the first, uh, actually, first of all, I should mention I've uh, recently moved from Florida to Virginia. But uh, having said that, I, you know, still have a big piece of my heart in Florida, right? And it is, it is absolutely where I worked as a police officer for a dozen years. One of the things that we need to realize is that decriminalization is only a piece of the puzzle of getting rid of black markets. Black markets are so dangerous in many cities because on the West it drives Coast. underground how these markets really no work, and we need them the time, to be able to operate like in the light of day. When we, we stop bringing like people very to, risky to, even to jail for possession and for transactions, that's all well and good. That's a, I mean, that is a huge, right? That's the first big step. But having said that, we similarly have to bring down barriers to people conducting these transactions in a truly commercially viable way and in a way that creates competition. If you don't do that, you're going to create black markets of another sort. So, for example, in these states where the, the state government 
or people are talking about in certain places, uh, more local governments than that uh, handling licensure. But in any event, in these places where local and state governments are controlling licensure, you're still going to have black markets if you don't allow everyone to participate. If you say, well, we're, you know, we're decriminalizing, quote unquote, possession and transactions. But however, on the other hand, it's still illegal unless you have a license and not everyone can get a license. Okay, well, you, you've made it halfway. You know, thanks for swimming halfway across the lake. But now that we're in the middle of it, I don't want to swim back. I want to continue swimming forward. And to accomplish that, we have to finish by not accidentally criminalizing the transactions by putting a certain group of people in this great category where they don't have a license, but they're going to end up conducting these transactions anyway because there's a market there. So for this reason, I think it's really important to educate the people who are legislating and regulating in these areas to understand that they still create black markets through licensure, even if they ostensibly make it legal to conduct transactions and and uh, to have possession. I agree with you. I think it absolutely factors into the issue because people see that things are not going well, right? And it's very difficult. Look, it's very difficult for professionals who, you know, are professional social scientists to collect data and tease out cause and effect. That's that's almost impossible in the best of circumstances with lots of data and lots of very smart, well-trained, well-intentioned people to figure all that out. So to expect the public to be able to sort this out is is asking uh, too much. It's one of the reasons why it's so important for libertarians, and 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 by that I mean libertarian-minded people. You know, let's all foster the libertarian notions in the heads of fellow Americans, even if they're not li- registered libertarians. If there's a a Republican or a Democrat or an independent person out there participating in in your county's uh, council or on your school board or what have you, we need to really support those people when they give voice to pro-market anti-criminalization ideas, for example, and and help those ideas uh, move along. So, for example, we need to be out there stating our principles, not only regarding drugs, but Another important piece of this puzzle is our criminal justice system that's layered over the top of that, right? We have an excruciatingly oppressive criminal justice system. And when you layer that on top of the drug war, it's really a bad mix. We need to be in the business of reforming 
what it is we ask of police officers, what it is that we criminalize, what is it that we decriminalize. We also need to be in the business of reforming how we manage police officers so that we don't get these these backlashes against police departments as we have in so many areas. And And believe me, I get it. I've seen bad police behavior just like everybody else has, right? We're all painfully aware, and thank goodness we have uh, so much video documentation of bad police behavior that I'm sure, you know, it's been going on for time immemorial, but at least now as a society, we're increasingly becoming aware of it. But all of that frustration has to be funneled into reforming how we manage police officers, learning how to hold officers accountable, departments and leadership accountable, how to create more competition among agencies, how to create more competition among officers, how to get a department, law enforcement department's culture more aligned with communities' values. These are things that we can make progress toward. But it does not help when a department digs in its heels, politicians fail to pursue reform, dig in their heels. You get silly ideas on the right side of of the political spectrum, like back the blue in every situation. That's not helpful. I'm a cop myself, and I don't say anything that stupid. And And then on the left side, you get a natural reaction uh, along the lines of, you know, defund the police. Don't let the police do their job, which is not helpful. Communities, it, it, people in communities with crime don't want an absence of law enforcement. They want more ethical, more efficient, more cost-effective law enforcement. They want law enforcement in line with their values. And this is something toward which we can work. But if we don't state our principles and our values up front in the direction that we're going, then we naturally invite this backlash from both sides to take advantage of a bad situation. I believe that's what we have a lot of going on on the West Coast, especially in some of these communities that are just fed up with their police and don't know what to do about it. Thanks, Mike. Uh, that was well said. Uh, Pablo, do you have anything else you wanted to discuss on this topic before we move into foreign policy? I think that was excellent, uh, Mike. I, I also think you touched upon a, a very unpopular, but a very unpopular idea that was pushed out in 2020 that we are living with the consequences now, which is defund the police. So. The, the tragedy of American cities, you kind of touched upon in that there are uh, fewer police resources. Uh, there are uh, laws that essentially make it legal to steal, which is an abrogation of property rights. Uh, and then public property, which is a, a misnomer, right? Uh, people are in Portland, especially in the Pacific Northwest, all over Washington State, California, uh, Oregon. There is a lot of uh, a homelessness here. And again, Public property is open wide for that. Um, we touched upon this concept, and I just want to call it out really for our audience here because it's been my hobby horse in Multnomah in Portland, Oregon, to tell my my Multnomah libertarian allies that we are living in a state of anarcho-tyranny, which is a stage of governmental dysfunction in which the state is hopeless at coping with large matters, 
but ruthlessly tyrannical in enforcement of small ones. Masks, for example, was the only law that was enforced in Portland in 2020. And in Portland today, the only way you can get a, a cop to show up to any criminal act is if a gun was involved. And more often than not, if an individual uses a firearm to defend themselves, uh, the police are involved and will prosecute the person exercising their constitutional right to defend themselves. So, yeah, we can move on to foreign policy. But again, that was a great sort of overview of the current state of American cities and the police. And Pablo, thank you for sharing that. That's a real important concept. I like the way that you uh, framed that up. And it does highlight how important it is for, I know this is going to sound absolutely ridiculous because uh, it, it just seems like pie in the sky, but how important it is for politicians to get right the need to impose our community's values on our law enforcement agencies. Communities have a right to come together, develop a criminal code, ask for law enforcement protection, and then to hold that agency accountable and have the right to replace it, have the right to be involved with training, have a right to have their values reflected and represented. And I agree with you wholeheartedly that that is, uh, that is not happening. If there's anything a town should get right, and we all recognize we're so frustrated with our towns at getting virtually nothing right. If there's one thing a town needs to be able to get right, it is the basics of providing the public service of enforcing uh, a criminal code and doing so with the lightest touch possible, but in a cost-effective manner. It's, it's a real source of frustration. Fantastic. Um, just talking to one of our listeners in the chat here a little bit. So yeah, let's let's move on to, I wanted to ask you, I really like what you had to say about the Ukraine situation um, in your speech. Um, I wanted to ask you, so if you were president, or I guess generally, um, how did the U.S. involvement in this area lead up to the conflict? And what do you think the U.S.'s role should be now? Uh, to go backwards, I think the U.S. role right now needs to be to get the hell out. But in answer to your question, we've done a number of things wrong. And by the way, uh, before I touch on all the things that we've done wrong, and, and I will because because they're important, right? I would hate to accidentally give the impression that anything I say excuses bad behavior on the part of, a, of another nation in terms of aggression towards a neighbor. We had a lot of reason to believe that history notwithstanding, and recent history notwithstanding in an even greater fashion, we had reason to believe that there were certain forces inside the Russian government that really wanted to live in a Westphalian world and wanted to, you know, honestly um, respect Ukraine when we cut a deal for the Ukrainians to give up nuclear uh, weapons. We now know that that was all bullshit. And we now know that the forces inside the Russian government were always on the side of bringing back some semblance of Russian military hegemony 
in Europe that they have always felt like they needed to rekindle the idea of a past all-powerful Russia. Having said that, and and, and by the way, and so what I'm trying to say there is that we need we need to be careful about not accidentally saying that how the Russians have behaved has been okay because it most certainly has not been acceptable in in any way, shape, or form. But having said that, the United States has done a number of things in Ukraine, uh, which has been not only unethical but not even in our long term interests. Beginning with that uh, deal twenty years ago to get longer ago than that now, to get the Ukrainians to give up nuclear weapons in exchange for uh, an implicit promise that their borders would be respected and an explicit promise from the Russian government, but an implicit promise that the United States would play a role in maintaining that. And of course, none of that was anything the Ukrainians uh, should have trusted. They realize that now. We also played uh, a very important role in bringing down the previously democratically elected government of Ukraine, which in fairness was a, a corrupt lot. So I'm not trying to suggest that, you know, we need to shed a lot of tears about what has passed for democracy in Ukraine. I don't mean that at all. But having said that, it should never have been accepted as an integral part of American foreign policy to decide who should be leading uh, Ukraine. Indeed, uh, I'm going to make no argument that the current leadership of Ukraine is the type of leadership that you would, you know, hope for a democratic nation that your family was living in. I have no patience for the Ukrainian government the past few years itself. So just as an objective empirical matter, the things that we have done in Ukraine have not gone in a, in a wonderful direction for the Ukrainians themselves. So we have done a lot, uh, and not even specifically in Ukraine, but more generally, we have done absolutely nothing to make the Russians stop worrying about the expansion of, of NATO. We have maintained the principle that we could invite other nations into NATO any damn well time we please. And you got to appreciate the fact, uh, Russian paranoia notwithstanding, you need to appreciate the fact that that sounds extremely threatening to a Russian government that does run on two ounces of paranoia and three ounces of manipulating their population into fearing outside forces in order to gain control of that population. We've really done nothing to help resolve these internal conflicts inside of, of Russia. Having said that, the Russian government is one of the few governments around the world that makes ours look damn smart. And and so I don't think that the Russians have played their cards right in the long run. I understand that Vladimir Putin is playing an internal political game in order to maintain power. And he plays with a, a different calculus than we're used to not merely as libertarians, but even as American politicians hell bent on on the conglomeration of power, he he manages his affairs differently than even American military power hungry politicians do. And I think that he's misplayed his hand. So having said all of that, 
Uh, I do not believe that it is in the long-term strategic interests of the United States to continue playing or even to have begun playing a major role in propping up the uh, Ukrainian government. And that's not to say that I have some sympathy for uh, the Russian invasion. I don't. I think it's, uh, it's a hellacious manner. By the way, uh, if we've learned anything from the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and I think there's probably a lot of lessons there, but if we've learned anything, one of the things that rises to the top is to the extent to which we worried about the Russian army being able to overrun Europe, those concerns were overblown. I think at this point, not only can you make an argument that NATO is no longer in America's interests, I think I would argue that NATO has not been in America's interest since an hour after uh, you know we inked those pages, but I think that you could probably argue that NATO is no longer in European nations' interests. How many examples have we seen of one European nation or another wanting to take action only to be talked out of it by the United States because we're afraid that we're going to be dragged into a war alongside them? I think most Europeans would be better off if they could make decisions that are in their own best interest. In many cases, those are going to be negotiated among their neighbors. But to the extent to which a European nation still continues to fear the Russian army, my message to them would be, you do you. If you are really uh, of a mind to continue fearing the Russian army, here is your wake-up call. The United States is not going to be your backup plan. We are no longer going to have military power projected into Europe for the sake of backing you up. We can no longer justify taking money from Americans forcibly and using it to project power for no other reason than to prop up our own military hegemony. That is no longer going to take place. So to the extent to which you, Madam and Mr. Leader of a European nation, still fear the Russians, now is the time for you to start spending more money on, on your own defense because the United States is not going to be your plan A anymore. That was excellent. I uh, really want to call out uh, your knowledge of history, which is uh, it, in, our, in our world, in the libertarian world, I think we are more cognizant of, of historical facts and kind of the, the revisionist elements of, of new data as it comes in. For example, uh, you made a really good point about the European fear of the Russians. Uh, Europeans and Americans were made to fear the Russians after the end of World War II, where it is evident that the Russians lost millions upon millions of lives in, in the war against Nazi Germany and were rebuilding, but at the same time became public, literally the public enemy number one in order to advance the Cold War, which put the United States and its allies back on war footing after World War II. So there really was no peace dividend. And there is a big business in war. There is an alignment of incentives in war. Uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, and now Ukraine are uh, major spending opportunities for the United States government. And I'm not exactly sure where all this force comes from, uh, but it does seem to have a very powerful lobby. That is a lobby that you as a libertarian are taking on directly when you talk about this kind of foreign policy. And any nuanced conversation about Russia, like you just gave us um, in Oregon, by some of our, you know, more spirited discussions with we've had with the Libertarian Party, are 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 painted as being pro-Russia, which is, I feel, you know, prop propagandistic at this point. Any any knowledge of history is is pro-Putin. 
is what I, I'm getting in some of the, the debates that we've had. Um, how are you as a Libertarian Party banner holder going to be able to push back against criticism of our point of view on that aspect? I think it's a tricky matter. And, you know, you put your finger right on something, Pablo, that um, is worth remembering. This is an answer to a different question. So let me go back a moment and then come forward to your more recent question. But you made a really important point about pointing out that millions of Russian lives were lost in World War II. That changes you as a nation. And when when you have a nation like Russia with such a long border to defend, such a history of conflict around Europe, such a history of conflict internally, the idea of losing millions of people during World War II and during the dozen years uh, after that, that necessarily changes your culture and your attitude. You cannot go through experiences like those without fear. And fear is something that a government will manipulate all day long to its own advantage in terms of gaining power. I'm really glad that, that, that you, uh, you brought up that point. In answer to your question about how to manage the nuance, I think, uh, first of all, it is tricky. Um, it, you know, sometimes I accidentally say things that make it sound like I think this stuff is uh, easy or simple, and, and I don't want to accidentally do that. You are exactly right. It is tricky, and we have internal debates inside of the Libertarian Party. However, having said that, it is nonetheless important that we continue to give voice to the truth and the truth being complex. Remember that as a strategic matter in terms of reaching out to to people outside of our party and to reaching out to uh, people inside the Republican Party, inside the Democratic Party, people who are, are independents. We are not trying to reach everybody. Uh, and that's not to say that our attitude should be, well, you know, we're only in it to reach out to a handful of people and everyone else can go pound sand. That's not what I mean. But what I mean is most Americans have a libertarian streak. Most Americans are frustrated with government in general and recognize that our, our government is not going the right direction. And most Americans are frustrated by our foreign policy. This is our opportunity and we need to jump on it. So we need to articulate the principles and at the same time recognize that it is complex. But uh, the alternative strategy of not uh, trying, right, or, or dodging the conversation, dodging the bullet, dodging the complexity, I believe is absolutely the wrong strategy. That would be a strategy if you were trying to get, you know, uh, 20% of the heart of 80% of the people. And what I want is 80% of the heart from 20% of the people because that's how you get the ball rolling. I believe that if we plant that libertarian flag in the ground hard and raise that flag high, people of a libertarian bent, which is to say a hell of a lot of Americans, will find us. But you got to give them a way to find us. You can't look similar to the other parties. You can't fail to raise the flag high 
and you sure as hell can't fail to engage these very important conversations. Look, if if we can't, and 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 I'm not suggesting you have any reason to want to back down from from these fights, right? But we can't let ourselves get told, don't go there, right? Look, this is the issue of the day. There are very few, and we can we can count we can count on them, and and we will count these uh, discussions as we go here tonight. But there are very few conversations as important as the implication of our participation in Ukraine to the future of foreign policy representing the United States of America, and therefore how the world is going to work over the next couple of generations. If we can't engage this, if we can't win hearts and minds from 10%, then 20%, then 30% of American voters, then what are we doing, right? Then Then you might as well pull the plug. I believe that we have an opportunity, but we're going to have to go after it and go after it hard. And that means a non-aggression principle-led foreign policy. And to point out that it's a matter of ethics, it's a matter of morality, it's a matter of giving Americans an opportunity to be represented by foreign policy that reflects their values, but also as an empirical matter. As an empirical matter, what the hell are we doing? No American would argue today that we are engaging in strategic interventions around the world that are paying off, that are making us wealthier, that turn out to be well done, that turn out to be the kinds of things that Americans want us to do. So for all of these reasons, we have a big opportunity, but we have to go after it. We have to take them on. So we have to continue saying, you know, in this particular case, we got to be able to say, look, I am in no way, shape, or form an apologist for Vladimir Putin. The guy uh, has neither ethics uh, nor a strategic vision that makes any sense for, I would argue, even for his own government, much less his people. But having said that, that does not excuse our own bad behavior. So, you know, if we can't say that, then we should be going home. Well said, Mike. Um, let me go back to you. Go ahead, Paolo. Did you have something? Okay. Well, there we go. I was just going to say something you said about NATO earlier uh, was interesting, and it kind of made me think. I read that the NATO recently opened up their first office in the in the East Pacific, um, specifically to uh, counter Chinese influence. I remember making a meme said that pointed out a circle of where the North Atlantic was and then where China was. And it really seems like the situation with Taiwan is developing in a way that could possibly spin out of control. I guess maybe a similar question to before, like what role has the U.S. played into developing this Taiwan crisis and like what should we be doing now in order to avoid this escalating further? Yeah, I noticed the same uh, thing that you did. I think it's a real shame. Not only are we engaged in revisionist history, but now we're redefining terms, right? When the North Atlantic includes the China Sea, I think we've got a real problem in terms of the government just not giving a rat's ass what it is that people think about these things. And it's just going to do whatever the hell it wants. Look, in answer to your question, yes, 
uh, the mirror image of what we have done to Russia, we are trying to do to uh, China. We we should have been in the business a long time ago, two generations, three generations ago, of saying a civil war is a civil war. If Americans want to root for one side or another, they are free to do so. If as Americans you want to participate, you know, knock yourself out. If you want to make investments, knock yourself out. If you want to engage in trade, you do you. But we cannot justify taking money from Americans forcibly and using it to project power into the China Sea in order to protect one group versus another. It is not our role to play. Now, because we have engaged in this silly policy of strategic ambiguity, we have created this self-fulfilling prophecy whereby which we have indicated to investors from around the world who had an inkling of investing in Taiwan, we have sent the signal that we would back up Taiwan. And we have encouraged thereby investors to create factories in Taiwan, turning out a range of items that we import into the United States, not the least of which is focused on technology, not the least of which within that category to be uh, chips, and most importantly, within that small category, uh, a number of types of chips that we are going to find necessary for not only the development of AI, but the development of a range of weapon systems that we now believe at the governmental level, we have government officials that believe that we cannot live without a supply chain of chips coming from Taiwan. And in in this way, we have created this self-fulfilling prophecy that says we'll wink and nod at investors going into Taiwan because they feel safe, because they believe that we will back them up if there's conflict with mainland China, and now that the investments have taken place there, we believe that we have to back up Taiwan or else we're afraid that these strategic uh, supply chains will get interrupted. Whereas if we had just been honest and open about it up front, if we had told people that that is a civil war of which we want no part, people would have put their investment in terms of developing factories for chips as the primary example, but for a range of other products elsewhere where they felt uh, safer. So a libertarian administration, capital L or lowercase l, has to right away send the signal. Strategic ambiguity is no longer going to be ambiguous. This is a war of which we want no part. If you are making investments in Taiwan because you believe the United States is going to back you up, it's time for you to rethink your investment strategy. Taipei is not part of the United States. I'm not necessarily saying, therefore, we're going to extort you into investing in Kansas City, but I do think that that's you know, probably a better idea. But you do you. You invest where you think you ought to be investing, but don't make the mistake of thinking that you're going to blackmail the United States into backing up Taipei just because you've invested 
our strategic supply chain there. I truly believe that it's it's huge. Um, I, I I do want to give credit where credit is due. You know, when you look at Singapore, Thailand, um, uh, uh, South Korea, for example, these are places that have done an excellent job of rejuvenating their market systems and therefore attracting uh, foreign direct investment. They've done a very good job of allowing their economies to develop in a way that has benefited both uh, their income as well, as well as their cultural development and their standing in the world. So I want to give kudos uh, where where they belong. And my heart breaks for Hong Kong, by the way, that we might want to talk about later on as well. But having having said all that, I, I agree with you that it does not serve the interests of everyday Americans for us to be encouraging investment abroad artificially. And by the way, we screw up uh, investment markets generally by keeping interest rates in such a weird place for the past dozen years. So that's a, that's a whole other topic that we need to talk about. And you're absolutely right. I believe that there is a parallel to not only the, the bailouts that we give to the banking industry, but to government uh, investment interventionism as well explicitly in the form of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which of course was where the catastrophe of 2007 began and of course ended with a series of uh, bailouts there. So I, I think it's a, a real shame no matter uh, how you look at it. Having said all of that, I think that there is another important point to be made, which is in many, and maybe you guys weren't going here, but let me just get this off my chest. There are any number of places in the United States that would benefit from greater foreign direct investment and greater investment from all over the United States. However, I believe that we need to be careful to guard against allowing our government to create incentives to put investment in certain places that we consider uh, in the strategic interests of the development of our people just because we have large population centers that have not done well because of an exodus of investment. Uh, I, as an example, arguably the leading example, uh, let's look at Detroit, which has gone from uh, what I believe at one point was the fourth largest city in the United States, pushing something like a million and a half or a million and three quarters people down to you know less than half of that over the past uh, two generations. 
It's a horrific situation. Your heart has to break for the difficulty that people faced because of having had to make the adjustment, which is to say move, right, uh, out of the city, out of the state, elsewhere in the United States. But let's keep in mind, the reason for the catastrophe was not a lack of investment coming into those areas. The reason for the catastrophe was because there was too much investment locked into these areas because we precluded competition internationally from competing with domestic automobile manufacturers. And so we artificially built up this huge industry, which, uh, you know, I, I, I will quickly grant you was fantastic, you know, having a burgeoning industry in, in automotive in, uh, in the state of Michigan and in Ohio for three, four or five generations, right? I mean, you know, who wasn't happy about the idea? But you have to admit that when you blow money, in effect, subsidizing these industries because of protectionism, that song is eventually going to end. And when it does, and when competition takes over, these communities are going to be devastated. And we have any number of these pockets of destitution around the United States for these reasons and others related to bad public policy. And so, you know, you had brought up a few minutes ago the difficulty of having these conversations about, for example, foreign policy and people accusing you of, of uh, you know, being warm to, to Vladdy Putin, which, of course, is uh, insane, right? Yeah, well, not just people, uh, also people, also corporate journalists like CNN, New York Times. Washington oh, yeah, Post. agreed. And by the way, uh, I, I love your distinction between uh, corporate journalists and people. I think that's really funny. Um, I just like the way that that came out. I know you didn't mean that they're literally not humans, but I, I think it's funny the way you put it. I'm only half joking. Um, yeah, but yeah. I, I yeah, no, I get that. it. I'm, I'm totally with you. <laughs> I'm not putting up an argument, right? I mean, that is really funny. Um but just like there are difficulties in engaging in these discussions because of the nuance, imagine when you say to people that a lot of the problems we have in Detroit were, the, were caused by bad public policy, we never should have been protecting Detroit auto works in the first place. You're going to get a lot of pushback. You're going to get a lot of pushback. And you can't back down from that because backing down from that is what leads to, uh, you know, so much sympathy generated in the public for the idea that the government has to do something to help places like Detroit. Now you're just back in the soup all over again with the bad public policy. So anyway, to your point, uh, these issues are uh, very, very tricky to handle rhetorically but they're, they're so important, right? If, if, you, if we're not willing to engage them, then, then what are we doing? I, I think it's great also to be aware that the corporate, like the cor corporate journalists have a very specific need for the Libertarian Party. Um, I think our most successful presidential candidate is uh, Gary Johnson. And the moment he became a, a figure that could draw uh, real vote 
and and shift the result of the election in a way that didn't favor sort of the biases of our corporate journalist class. Um, he he was savage. They, they called him out for not recalling Aleppo, uh, and he's mocked and ridiculed and savaged. And it, and he had numerous opportunities to uh, you know present our message, but it was never able to break through because there there was like this narrative uh, that was spun up about him that he was more occupied defending himself from than you know advancing our, our goal. So, Mike, I. I the, the, we're in a crisis of trust in American society. There are record levels of distrust of government and institutions at all levels, universities, corporations, et cetera. Um, if ever there were a time, especially in Oregon, where the number one political affiliation is non-affiliated voters, if ever there were a time for a third party to break through, it's going to be in 2024. So I'm really you know, eager for you to be quick on your feet. And I'm glad you you have all these uh, great and interesting answers that I think represent the ideas very well and the ideology very well. Uh, and uh, yeah, that is uh, that was a great answer on on Detroit because Detroit is a parallel to also Portland, which is also which is a dying city, which through its policies is driving off wealth and driving off jobs. Um, Peter, well, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Uh, Portland in particular breaks my heart because I was I was born in Multnomah. I was born in Portland. Uh, at what used to be called uh, Samaritan Hospital. I don't think it's called that anymore. Um, and, and you know, my family was there for a couple of years and has such uh, fond uh, feelings toward Portland. I can't even discuss Portland with my mother these days. I mean, she just uh, is absolutely beside herself, as you might imagine. It's, it's really uh, a heartbreaker because it is naturally such a, a, a beautiful city. And walking around it there a few weeks ago, with a buddy of mine, um, it, it really reminds you that the, the basics of decent public policy at the most granular level, when, when that goes wrong, it can really undermine uh, the, the quality of, of living in, in some of these places. It's, it's, a, it's a real challenge. And remember that, and, and it's a place like Portland that reminds us the reason that we're in this is because so many people, so many people can't be. We're in this to defend people that we call brothers and sisters for no other reason than the fact that they are fellow Americans. We are the ones that need to stand up for people that are least able to withstand the force of our government. If we don't stand up for our brothers and sisters, you guys know, and I know too, that nobody else damned will. And that's why we have an obligation to do so or go down swinging. I, I really appreciate you guys uh, being so encouraging. It is an uphill battle, but I do believe that Americans are ready to hear a message that uh, I, I think that they've been longing for I'm, I'm hoping they recognize it when it comes because it's coming. Appreciate that. Yeah, I think the people living in Portland and in Oregon uh, appreciate what you have to say about that. We can see that this is just a failed experiment in progressive prosecuting, taking away self-defense, like terrible gun laws, like terrible crime laws. And it's really just come home to roost in a way that a lot of us aren't happy with. So we can change that. I wanted to go back before we close because uh, Pablo brought up Gary Johnson, 
reminded me of something you said at the beginning of the conversation, Mike, about how we can't just say like, hey, we're fiscally conservative like the Republicans and socially liberal like the Democrats. Like a lot of people still in this party view Gary Johnson's campaign as the most successful in history just because it got like 5%. So maybe just the highest percentage, but it was really like a huge failure and a missed opportunity uh, for the moment I think that we were in. Like I, I like Gary Johnson. I think he's a good guy. Had a lot of good stuff to say, but we had this huge opportunity, two of the most hated presidential candidates in world history. And really we're kind of like in the same like same boat now. It's like if we would have stood on principle, said what libertarians actually feel um, about things like Syria and, and the gas attacks there that we now know were, were faked and like all those horrible foreign policy issues going on at the time. And especially in 2020, like, I just feel like Joe Jorgensen was just fell on her face and just didn't talk about COVID didn't talk about lockdowns. Like there's so much important things happening. It was just like, she was giving a speech that came out of like 1980, like the last like couple of years hadn't happened. So I guess I would ask you, um, how is your campaign? Like if you're nominated, going to be different? Like, how are you going to break through to people and care about the issues that people actually talk about in a way that is formidable? and a way that is unabashed with libertarian principle. And I guess um, if there are any other issues or positions that you want to just briefly explain that you care about in your campaign as well. Well, we've touched on uh, a lot of the important ones and we can talk about some of the economic ones as well. But look, it, in, in my view, the fundamental answer to your question is to recognize that the reason Gary's campaign fell apart, and, and by the way, I agree with you. I think Gary seems like a hell of a nice guy. He seems like a bright guy. I'm not really all that familiar with how his New Mexico gubernatorial years went, but people tell me that they were moderately successful and he did a good job of controlling spending a little bit. So I, I don't want this to sound personal, like I'm running the guy down, right? But having said all that, the, the, the reason his campaign collapsed was not because he forgot what Aleppo meant. It's not because, you know, he, as he said, he, he was, thought maybe it was some sort of acronym. He didn't recognize the name whatever. It's a mistake he shouldn't have made, but he made it. And a lot of people piled on. In my view, that is not the reason why his campaign collapsed. The reason his campaign collapsed was because when he made that mistake, people were not rallied around him and they were not willing to rally around him. And contrast that with a guy who I really dislike for whom I have no patience, uh, but contrast that with Donald Trump. And I was in New York in the 1980s, so I got lots of historical reasons to dislike Donald Trump. But having, having said all that, I think you have to admit, you have to give it to the guy when he said, I could probably shoot someone on Fifth Avenue without losing a, a lot of support. That's probably not a direct quote, but that's, that's the general idea, right? When he said that, I'm not sure he was wrong. And it's not because shooting someone is not a hell of a lot worse than forgetting the name of a city in Syria. It is a lot worse. Indeed, uh, he has been recently found responsible for sexual assault, which I find uh, absolutely horrific. Um, you know, these other silly indictments don't impress me much. I think that they're largely politically motivated. But, you know, as someone with, uh, you know, daughters and sisters and mothers and 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 a wife um you know the idea that we have glossed over the fact that he was recently found responsible for sexual assault 
I find that profoundly disturbing. But having said that, um, you have to admit that people know why they like Donald Trump. They know why they don't like Donald Trump. Whatever it is that they like about him, and I am not going to defend anything about him. He's a populist. He's not a libertarian. He's not fiscally conservative. Uh, he's nowhere near uh, anti-military intervention enough for me personally. Uh, he's not pro-trade. He's not pro-growth. There's a lot about him to dislike. But people know what they like about him. People did not know what it is that they liked about Gary Johnson because, to your point, he was defining himself in the context of the other parties. Bad strategy 101. Donald Trump knows what he is. Uh, I'm not sure he knows what he's not, but he certainly knows what he is, and he's willing to fulfill that. We need to learn that lesson, which is not to say we need to be anything like Donald Trump. But it is to say that we need to be honest. We need to be honest with ourselves, and we need to be honest with the American people. This is what we believe in. We do believe that an anti-war policy is the only thing that is ethically viable. In the long run, it's the only way to align with Americans' principles. We need to be able to say that. We need to be able to say Social Security is evil. If you're not willing to say it, then why are you participating in this? And one of the things that, that bothers me about Gary's campaign, and to be honest, and I like Joe a lot on a personal level, and she, we don't really know each other much. I mean, she's been kind to me. So again, I don't mean this to be personal. But why are we participating in this if not to tell the truth? The truth is, that the idea that the federal government should be able to tell you to get vaccinated or lose your job, shut your business, or potentially go to jail, uh, if that doesn't define government overreach in a way that is more frightening than we have seen since uh, you know Europe in the 1940s, if you don't get that, if you're not willing to point that out, if you're not willing to point out that that's what your entire campaign is going to be about, then why are we participating in this? Just leave it to the Republicans and the Democrats. If you're not going to be something different, if you're not going to be authentic, you're not going to be yourself. I mean, my goodness, if you really believe that you're going to get more votes by defining yourself in the context of other parties, I'm sorry. You have not only lost the battle before it starts in terms of spreading your own principles, but you're wrong strategically. It's not going to work. And so in that sense, I think that we have to give up this silly notion that people are going to like us more, that more people are going to come to us if we sound more palatable, if we sound more like what people are used to hearing. That's just not how it works. Uh, it's dishonest and it doesn't work. Thank you. That is uh, a terrific summation of why I think Peter and I both became so active in the Libertarian Party. We, we too sort of were lifelong libertarians dismayed with the messaging that was coming out of the party. And we took it on ourselves to help be the change that we wanted to see in the world. And in Oregon, um, we are 
taking very bold and principled stands on behalf of the party uh, through our public policy board, which is how we, we can communicate with our members and, and the public. And uh, we uh, look forward to having a very spirited uh, LP presidential uh, race. And I, I think you, you're really making a strong case for your candidacy, uh, Mike. Uh, Peter? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I agree with Pablo. And I think I told you at the convention, like, I didn't realize who you were at the time when I was talking to you, but uh, I was sitting at the Mises table. But I really felt that I had no choice but to get involved in the Libertarian Party after seeing the debate between Nick Sarwark and, and Dave Smith. I was just so dissatisfied with the way that the party was being run at the time and just the people that were in charge of it. And I really felt like there was a way to get like a wider net to apply to more like blue collar people that care more about issues of like war and peace, the economy and things that really affect them than like some of the stuff that was being focused on at the time. And especially just like deal with the corruption and place like libertarian values and libertarian policy right at the forefront. And just like you said earlier, stop trying to cater to people. Like I think Dave Smith probably said it best. Like we shouldn't be trying to convince people like why they should be libertarians. We should be, temporarily or like or tricking them i think is what he said we shouldn't be tricking people into thinking they're libertarian we should be explaining to them like why they already are i think i think you're exactly right i think that's well said i think most americans do have that libertarian streak and we're going to give them an opportunity to recognize it in themselves I'm very proud of you guys by the way um i i recognize the the sources of frustration that you guys have put your fingers on and i agree with you wholeheartedly so i wish you all the best Great. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about um, regarding your campaign uh, before we end, Mike? Thank you very much again for coming on. We'd be happy to have you on again in a couple of months just to see how everything's going. No, I appreciate that. I think that we've covered a lot of good ground. Uh, you know, if people want to get involved with the campaign, uh, we're, we're welcoming people in. We have a tremendous team right now. We've got uh, a total of 14 people that are in some sort of a pay, lightly paid, right? Let's not let anyone uh, get crazy in their thoughts. We have uh, something like 14 people on our professional team. We have another dozen people uh, in our advisory team. Uh, and we have uh, lots and lots of volunteers. So if people want to play a role in one way or another, we have roles to play. If uh, any of your listeners have a few bucks that they're just dying to get rid of, and you know there are people out there that are annoyed by money, and if, if you just got to get rid of a few bucks, you can go to our website and accomplish that. And you can go read about uh, what we call the Gold New Deal, our platform to develop a new relationship between us and our government. You can read about that at goldnewdeal.org, goldnewdeal.org, or you can go to mytremont.com, two A's in Tremont, so you have to spell it right. But you can go to mytremont.com and read about the, uh, read about the campaign. Great. We've got your uh, website link there in the description, so um, please find it there. And thank you, everybody, for joining. Pablo, do you have any final thoughts? No, just thank you for, for spending time with Mike, us, Mike Termont. Uh, MikeTermont.com, we'll, we'll go and check out and read some more. Uh, really, really great conversation. Thank you. You guys are terrific. I've really had a good time. I look forward to doing it again. Thank you. Everybody have a great night. Thanks for joining us, and cheers.